Zach, it's only been a couple of days since we last spoke, but an awful lot has happened and it's kind of forced our hand. We had to do a bonus stroke emergency, stroke snap episode of the Midfield Politics podcast. So to our listeners, welcome back to the show. My name is Luke James. I'm joined across the dispatch box, as always, by Zach Green. And on today's mini episode of the podcast, remains to be seen how many the episode of this podcast will be, I imagine. Um, we're going to be talking about two things. The cabinet reshuffle and AUKUS, the new trilateral military agreement between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. As kind of this, these two stories are the two main things that have happened since we last spoke, I won't ask Zach what has caught his attention over the last seven days. But what I will ask Zach is what was the, the biggest thing in the reshuffle that caught your attention? I think the whole farce of Dominic Raab is well. It's the he- it was the headline of the reshuffle, but it was also kind of the the real takeaway that, despite again, I think I've said this a lot of times on the podcast. Despite having a, a huge majority, Boris Johnson's addictive nature in being liked, he likes to be liked, has come to the fore again, and with someone who has been briefed against quite badly in Dominic Raab. He has still given Dominic Raab essentially the second in command job about being deputy prime minister, as well as a demotion to uh, the justice uh, ministry of justice. So I, I found that to be the real big headline. And then the second one is kind of the message of the reshuffle that we've gone from the get Brexit done part of the cabinet for the last eighteen months since the general election. We're now in the second phase of the Johnson era, essentially, that we're now in the Build Back Better cabinet. So this is set to be the team that will probably go into the next general election, as per the Telegraph, I think the BBC, and as well, The Guardian. There is the sense that this team will be the team that goes into the general election, that everything's now in place for Johnson to crack on with a lot of reforms or crack on at least with this slogan of building back better and levelling up to then go into the next one, which the new party chair, Oliver Dowden, essentially has said that we have to get ready for one. Before we get into discussing kind of the the, the minutiae of, of this topic, we should probably fill in the listeners as to what the, the key things that happened in the reshuffle were. So the people moving out of cabinet gavin williamson was sacked he was joined on the way out by let me just get it up quickly robert buckland was also kicked out of cabinet as well as robert jenrick and amanda milling who was the conservative party co-chair although she has been given a ministerial role at the foreign office so of course gavin williamson, gavin williamson was from education robert jenrick housing and robert buckland was from justice and after a lot of toing and froing, these are the people who are now in cabinet or have ministerial roles that have moved recently. So Liz Truss is now the foreign secretary. Stephen Barkley is the chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. That was previously Michael Gove. Anne-Marie Trevelin is the international trade secretary. Nadim Sahawi is now at Education. Nadim Doris is Culture Secretary. Michael Gove has a new position. He's now at Housing, Communities and Local Government. Dominic Raab, as Zach mentioned, has, has an interesting new title now. He is Justice Secretary, Lord Chancellor and Deputy Prime Minister. 
Oliver Dowden is now party co-chairman and minister without a portfolio. Nigel Adams is a minister without portfolio in the cabinet office. And Simon Clark is now the chief secretary to the treasury. Those are the movers in cabinet. Of course, that means that likes Priti Patel, Rishi Sunak have stayed where they already were, as has Ben Wallace, for example. So a lot of movement on, on the behest of Boris Johnson. Again, this is the second major reshuffle of his of his leadership of the party, of course, when he when he was first into power, he made he made a, a lot of really, really big changes. You mentioned, Zach, that this kind of we've had the get Brexit done government. This is now the build back better government. Um for context for the listeners, I am of the opinion, and I don't know how controversial this will be, that individual cabinet men- ministers especially in governments like this one, aren't that important. I think you could switch out Michael Gove for Grant Shapps in any position that they could potentially hold. And I don't think it would make an awful lot of difference. I think kind of this is a government led by the prime minister. This isn't the prime minister who's first among many. He is simply just first. Um, the first among equals, rather, I, I believe, honestly, that Boris Johnson is, is, is just top of the tree. And that's that's how this government is run. So, Zach, I guess the question to you is, how significant is this change? Because from my perspective, cabinet isn't as important as it used to be. Well, first of all, I'd agree on the point that I think this cabinet, the underlying message, they're all Johnson loyalists, especially Nadine Dorries, was part of the campaign that to have Boris Johnson as prime minister in 2016, about, very much a permanent Johnson fan and those who have been loyal to Boris Johnson even from the backbenches even when Anne-Marie Trevelyan for example when her department was abolished and merged I think it was with the international trade office so she's always been due to return but she's always been quite loyal to Boris Johnson they've been rewarded essentially and those who were and it was the message I think it was on Newsnight essentially the latecomers so the Robert Bucklands of the Conservative Party that didn't back Boris Johnson in 2016, but they backed him in 2019 as they saw him as this last hope to win the next general election, in which they did. And it just seems to me that it's full of loyalists. And that, I think, will become a big problem in the months and years to come, that there are going to be issues in this government that I don't think is going to have full unanimity in the decision-making process. And we know that Boris Johnson does like to be liked. So, of course, he's going to, to borrow a phrase from the day about crush the saboteurs, as it were, that those who he sees as a threat have had their wings clipped. So Liz Truss, for example, who is extremely popular amongst the grassroots of the Conservative Party, I think she's actually the highest ranked minister, promoted to one of the great officers of the state, but she's going to be flying about everywhere. Michael Gove the one who knifed him in the back in 2016 and has always been seen as the the heir apparent whenever Boris Johnson was to leave, is now carted off with potentially a very toxic policy if it goes wrong, i.e. housing, a key feature of the levelling up process. So I think it's actually quite a smart reshuffle in terms of those who are seen to be threats to Boris Johnson have been brought closer to him, but in bringing them closer, he's now spreading them out a bit. But as well, the face of this government is about style, isn't it? 
So, for example, Nadim Zahawi, who was the vaccines minister, widely credited for the vaccine programme, essentially getting things done. It's all getting done. He's now been brought into education, which the reputation of the Department of Education has been left in tatters by Gavin Williamson. It's, I think, what Johnson wants to project onto the rest of the country, as well as within his own party, is we have ministers in post that are reformers that can crack on with the next chapter of the agenda. And it was briefed, wasn't it, in that Times article, as well as the Financial Times, that come the next general election, Boris Johnson wants to ask the British people, not for a fifth Conservative term, but for a second Johnson term. I think that interplay is very, very important in understanding why he's moved certain people around in the cabinet to certain posts. So as well as awarding loyalty, he's trying to give this image of a fresh government, of getting things done at a time when the Tories are really suffering in the polls. And in terms of their branding, they're seen as untrustworthy, they're seen as incompetent, they're seen as really not doing much at all apart from harking back to what many people thought was already done, i.e. the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see how this cabinet plays out between now and presumably the next general election. As I've said, I'm not I'm not a firm believer in, in the importance of cabinet. I'm not a firm believer in, in the idea that, that members of the general public, people who aren't particularly interested in politics, I don't think this is something that, that is is a major new story. I think it's great for political geeks. I think it's our transfer deadline day, but I think beyond that, I, I think it's a kind of importance is slightly overstated. However, what I do think about cabinet reshuffles is that when you make a really big move, when you sack someone who's very high profile, when you sack someone who is in a really important position, um, that gives you an opportunity as prime minister to get rid of any kind of blemishes on, on your government's record or at least to, to, to try and have the electorate forgive you for those issues. What I'm getting at, I'm sure this isn't a huge surprise, I'm talking about Gavin Williamson. So Gavin Williamson, of course, as Zach has mentioned, educa former education secretary, oversaw the past, well, the whole of the coronavirus era, education failures, kind of the first year when, when it was just a complete shambles, this year when, again, there still weren't GCSE and A-level exams. Um, this is a guy who was fundamentally unpopular within his own party. So the um, Conservative Home does frequent kind of satisfaction ratings amongst Conservative Party members for members of the cabinet. Um, Liz Truss has been at the top of this list for a very, very long time. She's like net 60% positive. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, Gavin Williamson's is about minus 55% satisfaction rate. Is it a major surprise that Gavin Williamson is gone? No, I think the question I want to put to you, Zach, is how significant is sacking Gavin Williamson for the whole of the government? Because is is this like a palate cleanser now? Can the Conservatives say, look, we got rid of that guy, the public didn't like him, and now we can kind of move on and try and build back better in education rather than get Brexit done in education? Absolutely. And it, that and the proof is in the pudding of who replaces him, Nadeem Zahawi, an appointment I actually think is quite good for the Department of Education that, again, it's a minister that has been competent in his role as vaccine as vaccines minister. It's also quite brave from Boris Johnson, as we know Gavin Williamson's reputation of knowing where the bodies are buried, that he kept his post before being sacked in Theresa May's government as essentially being the one that could ruin Theresa May's premiership. 
And the same kind of fear as with his Boris Johnson's premiership, that if you were to give Gavin Williamson a place on the backbenches, he would cause a lot of mischief, organise the rebellions, and essentially make things quite tricky for Boris Johnson. That might still happen, but as has been quoted by many political editors, the PM is in this invincible mode in terms of, you know, he's world king. And if these backbenchers dare cross Boris Johnson, they're welcome to, but he's given the impression of you can try, but it's just not going to land with him. So I think it's significant in that respect as well. As to shacking governments within the government, I think it will just give a... It's a time of there has definitely been some sort of change. And it's a thing that the Conservative Party have gone on about for quite a long time. It's key to their success, I think, in the local elections back in May and in loads of Labour heartlands where the Tories essentially were saying to these areas, it's time for a change, isn't it? You know, your area has been represented by Labour for 20, 30 years. Nothing's been done. Give us another mandate with a new, fresh outlook. It's playing into that trope as well. So it is significant. And it'll be interesting to see how Zahawi does in education. Can he carry on this feel-good factor from the vac- from the vac- being vaccines minister? That's yet to be seen. There are so many problems in the education department that anyone who goes in there as the Secretary of State is a brave person and we'll wait and see. And if Nadine Zahawi can do well in education, I can see him being a contender for a higher office in the future. You obviously mentioned Nadine Zahawi there quite a bit because we're talking about education. He's the, he's the new guy up. Um this is going to sound really cynical, and perhaps it is really cynical. That would be why it sounds cynical. Do you think he's got quite lucky with the timing of this? Because he has been, not not him personally, but the vaccine rollout for many, many, many months has been heralded as being a huge government success. And of course, as the guy who was vaccines minister, that's obviously a bit of a boon for his reputation. Now, the tide on the vaccine rollout, is actually starting to turn a little bit now because the UK has been overtaken by lots of countries in Europe. Um, The UK dragged its feet on kind of whether or not they were going to give vaccines to uh, school children the ages of of, of 12 to 15. Also dragged their feet on whether or not to give booster shots to to kind of the clinically vulnerable, people over 50, people with pre-existing health conditions. And I have a sneaky suspicion that public sentiment regarding the vaccine rollout might start to change pretty quickly if A, the pandemic gets worse, or B, people start to look more at the international comparisons and see that, hey, global Britain isn't quite leading the way on this one. Um, so this is really convenient timing for Sahari, is it? Is it not? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, I think he's landed on his feet in this in the past couple of months that he's overseen that vaccine bounce, which unfortunately for the Conservatives, is well and truly over in terms of public opinion towards the Conservatives. It's it's soured from the vaccine bounce, which was around in May and the early part of June. And the next big task in that department will be the booster shots. How far can that go? Because, of course, the uh, booster vaccine programme is to be part of this plan A to avoid restrictions, mask mandates, vaccine passports as a plan b in the winter now if that was to go wrong whoever is the poor suspecting minister or politician in charge 
overseeing that program is going to get quite a lot of flack for it. So Zahari's definitely got very lucky there. Before we move on and talk about a couple of the, the other appointments in cabinet and kind of more about the reshuffle, let's just go through a couple of statistics really quickly. So Boris Johnson's new cabinet is just over a quarter full of kind of female position holders. So the government now is 27% of it are, are, are women in the cabinet. That's that's exactly the same as previously under Boris Johnson. For context, the highs since 1979, Gordon Brown was 30% women in cabinet. Theresa May was 30% women in cabinet. The low point was Margaret Thatcher. That was just 5%. And of course, that's compared to 51% of the general population. Um, these stats via the BBC, by the way. Uh, just under two-thirds of Boris Johnson's cabinet attended an independent school. So 63% of Boris Johnson's government has attended an independent school that is compared to seven percent of the general population um the all-time high point was 91 percent over margaret thatcher uh the low point was 30 percent under theresa may in 2016 we were talking about we'll talk about theresa may in a little bit as well because you said something really interesting off air zach but it's it's really interesting to see that theresa may actually did some pretty clever politics like textbook things um but it just didn't didn't obviously work out and it all went very, very badly. Um, moving swiftly onwards, Oxbridge graduates in the cabinet, that's now 43% compared to 1% of the general population. Um, the low point was in 1997 and under Tony Blair, that was 16%. The high point, 81% over Margaret Thatcher. Um, the next person I want to talk to you about before we go on and, and I, I get you to share your thoughts on Theresa May because I thought it was really interesting off air. Um, Dominic Raab, you mentioned him at the start of the show. Um, I'm fascinated. This is the thing that does really interest me about the reshuffle. I'm fascinated by the interaction between a prime minister who clearly wants to either demote or sack someone and a cabinet minister who says, no, I don't want to be demoted. You'll have to sack me. I find that dynamic really, really fascinating. So what did you make of the standoff between... Raab and Johnson, and did Dominic Raab deserve to be demoted after the Afghanistan situation? And is this a demotion? I mean, all of those things are, are, are being contested. Of course, Dominic Raab's team are very keen to say that this isn't a demotion in any way, shape or form, but it doesn't quite look like that. So essentially, it, it's one of those interesting dynamics in a cabinet reshuffle where there's a demotion but it's not a demotion he's still deputy prime minister now it's a post that's been held by many prolific um many iconic politicians you know the john prescott's of our time even the nick Cleggs of our time i think it's a more ceremonious post rather than him having actual power so in effect it is a demotion because you go from one of the great offices of the state to the Ministry of Justice, now that's not a slight on the Ministry of Justice at all, I think that's a really rewarding department if you can go there with the rigour and the zeal that that department needs, because essentially you're in charge of the justice system. But compare that to the Foreign Office, of course it pales in comparison, doesn't it, that those in the top four offices of the state usually are the ones we talk about in terms of leadership ambitions and Dominic Raab's leadership ambitions have very much fizzled out over the past two years. As whether he deserved to, to be demoted or be removed from the Foreign Office completely. I think it was quite a farce, you know, to say that the sea was closed. He essentially was trying to conduct foreign policy on the beach. 
it's one of those things where I think Dominic Raab is being a bit arrogant here that essentially his defence to Boris Johnson is, well, I didn't see this coming. I've actually done quite a good job when the headlines would suggest something else. But, so, yeah, overall, I think the demotion's deserved. It's a demotion, don't get me wrong, but it's farcical that he's managed to still wriggle the Deputy Prime Minister post because given it's got no real power behind that post, you know, for example... It's not as if Dominic Raab can make huge decisions in that department as such. It's not really a department. It's a ceremonious post. It's still the kind of the title about it, isn't it? And correct me if I'm wrong, but Dominic Raab, when the uh, when the prime minister was kind of decapacitated with with the coronavirus, what eighteen months ago now, he was he was kind of the standing prime minister at that point, wasn't he? Mm. Which conducted the briefings and yeah, which which makes this all the more I think such a big deal. I think this is more significant in terms of internal Tory party politics than um, than Gavin Williamson because this is a politician. This is a member of the cabinet who the prime minister clearly has held in such high regard, and yet he's still wanted to demote him, and now. I should point out that I, I'm calling it a demotion because I think that's what Boris Johnson wants it to be. I think that's what Boris Johnson sees it as. Um, my opinion on whether or not being Justice Secretary is less important than Dominic Rubb's former position is is not that. I mean, I think it's absolutely... A sta- I think it says a lot about kind of the Conservatives' attitudes towards the criminal justice system, that being moved to Justice Secretary is seen as a demotion. I think that's astounding, and I'm sure Zach, as a law student, probably has has things to say about that as well. Um, yeah, it's it's a really really odd one. Um, is there anything else before I ask you about Theresa May and before we move on to AUKUS that you'd you'd like to talk about in terms of the cabinet? It was another significant thing about obviously the first day of the reshuffle is the big day in terms of the real movers and shakers. Are there for all to see. The second day was all about the those underneath the, uh, the secretaries of state, and it was pointed out that a lot of Rishi Sunak's team have been moved about a bit, which I think it was Laura Coonsberg who was saying well, conspiracy theorists can now think something. What's going on here? I found it particularly interesting because we know that there is this strange dynamic between Rishi Sunak in number eleven and Boris Johnson in number ten. It's it's like a a dialectic of history where the Chancellor and the Prime Minister eventually, inevitably, always clash. And given the furore over national insurance and in the next couple of months, the spending review, I think this is only going to get worse, especially when you're clipping the wings of your Chancellor by moving about his staff in all different directions. I think that was a big subheading of the reshuffle. And the lasting comment is, this is a cabinet ready for the next general election. If I'm the Labour Party, I think I would be changing my shadow cabinet as well to respond. For sure. I think I think reshuffles... I think you probably kind of match reshuffles unless you've got a really, really settled team. I don't think... The thing is, I'm underwhelmed by government reshuffles. So you can imagine my thoughts about shadow cabinet reshuffles, I can imagine. Um, but yeah, no, I see the logic behind kind of matching Boris Johnson one for one in that regard. Um, actually, I, I did want to ask you about one more minister before we move on. Um, 
Nadine Dorries as culture secretary. I find it astounding that a, a, a politician of her caliber is, is in cabinet and is in a relatively important role. I just, it's incredible to me. There was a tweet from her last year. This was at peak kind of Premier League footballers should pay their way during the pandemic discourse saga. Obviously, that was from Matt Hancock, then health health secretary. And uh, Nadine Doris posted a tweet that suggested that she thought that the Premier League footballers were paid like twenty thousand pounds a week as the average wage, which, considering she's the now the secretary of the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, that's quite something, I'd imagine. Um, why is what did you make of her elevation in cabinet, Zach? It's a, yes, I think it's a stunning move. I mean, the previous incumbent, Oliver Dowden, was playing into this culture war thing, wasn't he, before he left that department in terms of the statue thing about being the war on woke. I think Nadine Doris is a continuation, if not an escalation of this. We know Nadine Doris is a big vocal critic of the woke left, in quote marks, uh, the BBC, a fierce critic of the BBC, I think it's, again, putting the Conservatives on a war footing with this tenet of politics, which is an angle they see as an election winner in terms of mobilising social Conservatives. That's the kind of the school of thought Nadine Doris comes from in that regard. It's a continuation of it. It's a stunning appointment, nonetheless, just because we know from her tweets, from her interactions, even as a health minister, that it appears that she, it, she would be out of her depth in that department. Yeah, that's, as I said, I'm not that passionate about the reshuffle, any reshuffle whatsoever, to be completely honest. But the one thing I would say about a lot of the ministers, I think a lot of them are, are competent. Like Michael Gove, for example, I think, uh, obviously, you know my views on his politics, but I think he is generally speaking quite a competent politician quite a competent minister um so i understand why he's in the cabinet whether or not i agree with his politics is beside the point nadine dorries i'm sorry i'm sorry but no it's just yeah no I, I, that that one has has left me a little bit speechless and um, before we move on to the australia uk us trilateral defense pact you raised a really interesting comment earlier so we were talking about Theresa may um, and you basically said kind of what would have been had she got a majority in 2017. She would have had, obviously had the majority as a result of that. She would have been able to get her Brexit deal through. Then there would have been COVID and then there would have been kind of an election probably in, in May 2022. How different would have all of this gone had Theresa May got that majority? Had Theresa May, May ironically not put forward the what was then dubbed the dementia tax, which probably cost her the majority in the first place. Like, how different would, would the world be? I think in terms of this country, I think it would be remarkably different. As much as, again, I don't agree with Theresa May's politics, I'd always put her compared to Boris Johnson as a more moderate figure in the Conservative Party, that the country was incredibly divided at the time that Theresa May left office. I think if she had been given her majority, quite ironically, we would have seen the real Theresa May, the real, what she could have been as Prime Minister, kind of the policies that she had thought out were quite very much to try and follow her party rather than lead it. 
if she had that majority, she would have got Brexit done. She could have just said, look, I've now put Brexit to bed. And then you'd have had, of course, her management during COVID. I think she would have been a lot more competent than Boris Johnson during COVID. And it is just stunning, isn't it? I think the timelines would have been completely different in terms of the attitudes towards the Tory party. And you have to remember in 2017, the majorities in which Theresa May was being quoted at, you know, some people thought she'd get a majority equivalent of Blair, simply because she was that emphatically ahead. And as you raised there about the so-called dementia tax, which many experts have now actually come out and said, technically, this was a much more thought out plan than Boris Johnson's hiking of national insurance. I think she would have snuck that in anyway if she had the majorities of which she was being quoted at. So the actual infrastructure of the Conservative Party would be completely different as well. I think Boris Johnson would be a non-entity in the Conservative Party simply because when you have a huge majority, you have no incentive to go. You could probably win the next general election quite easily with a huge majority. So nonetheless, it's... um, it would have been a completely different timeline, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, I mean, we really, really early on in the podcast, we did a counterfactual episode where we spoke about kind of what would have happened if, uh, I think it was if the um, yes side won the Scottish referendum. Um, and that was interesting as well. I didn't get many views, that's why we didn't do another episode of it. <laughs> but no, I find the kind of what if counterfactuals kind of things really interesting. I think... Theresa May as well, it's worth saying, um, and I stand to be corrected if I'm if I'm incorrect on this one, um, but I saw it as kind of a prominent twi- uh, political commentator said it on Twitter the other day, so I'm going to assume that it is true. Theresa May is actually clinically vulnerable to the coronavirus. Like, she would have been someone at, and continues to be, obviously, at higher risk. So the idea of her being Prime Minister during the COVID pandemic, like, how different would the policies have been how different would the discourse have been I, yeah it's it's definitely food for thought and the final thing on Theresa May again like Michael Gove and uh, as you say with regards to the dementia tax which has been proven to be probably a better policy than again it's ridiculous that we're calling it the dementia tax but anyway that's what it was called so we'll, we'll just roll with it the dementia tax was or has been found to have probably been more robust than what Boris Johnson has proposed and what Boris Johnson has passed her Brexit deal as well was a better deal on paper than Boris Johnson's, and yet Boris Johnson got his through and Theresa May didn't. I mean, it, it's like this is someone who's good at policy but not good at politics. Um, and yeah, it's the kind of person who should be in cabinet but obviously isn't going to be because she's a former prime minister. So, no, I, I yeah, fascinating. Um, and I thought something that would be interesting to, to share with the group, basically. Um, Zach, this is where we switch sides, and, and you play the role of questioner, and I play the role of Hopefully I can come up with some half-decent answers. Um, We wanted to talk about the trilateral between Australia, United Kingdom and US. From now on, I'm just going to call it AUKUS. Zach, what's on your mind? Well, I think at the top of all these questions, the first thing is, so what exactly is it? Okay, so AUKUS, which has been kind of styled by, by Australia, is a trilateral security pact between Australia, the UK and US, clue in the name. Um, what's basically going to happen is the United States and the United Kingdom will help Australia develop and potentially deploy nuclear-powered submarines, adding to kind of the West's military presence in the Pacific region. Now, there was a big joint announcement between 
Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and US President Joe Biden just a, just a couple of days ago. It was at 10 o'clock on Wednesday evening, I think, maybe. Um, midweek, anyway. Um, they didn't mention any other country by name. However, they spoke a lot about the Indo-Pacific region and making sure that there's, there's ample security in that region. Um, the agreement has also kind of been characterised as a replacement for the ANZ-US pact, which was between Australia, New Zealand, the United States. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the replacement thing going on there. Now, the interesting thing about this is the agreement covers areas like artificial intelligence, cyber warfare, underwater capabilities, long-range strike capabilities. It also includes a nuclear component, possibly limited to the United States and the United Kingdom on nuclear defense infrastructure. Now, the agreement will focus on kind of military things, which is separate from, from intelligence and the Five Eyes system that we have on there, which also includes the New, Ze uh, the New Zealand New Zealand and Canada as well. Now, you might be wondering, okay, why aren't New Zealand involved in this? It would probably make sense if they were. It's because they have a ban on, on nuclear energy in the country at the moment, which obviously rules them out of this kind of thing. That's not been officially announced, but that's kind of reading between the lines is what's gone on there. So, yeah, basically, this is about military power in the quote-unquote Indo-Pacific region. It's about nuclear submarines. It's about Australia, the UK, and the US working together. And as I said, it was founded on the 15th of September, so just two days ago. So why... I've been reading this. Essentially, it's been criticised by especially the European Union, but especially France. And I was wondering why why is it attracting so much criticism from abroad? So the issue uh, that the French have, basically, is that there was an agreement between France and Australia on a similar level regarding nuclear submarines. And instead of following through with the agreement that Australia had with the French, the Australians have turned to the UK and the US instead and, and started this trilateral pact instead. So that is why the French in particular aren't happy with this. Um, in terms of the European Union as a whole, Europe as a whole, of course, there's an element of kind of being annoyed on, on behalf of France for those specific reasons. I think it's also a fact of saying, well, we have other bodies in place, like we have NATO, we have all these different things. Do we need another thing that is just Australia, the UK and the US? And the other important thing to say about the European Union, and if we, when I say the European Union now, I'm not talking about the member states within it. I'm talking about the European Union as a supranational organisation. Um, the EU sees itself as a big international global player on things like defence. So the fact that it's not involved is obviously a bit of an issue in that regard because it does like to see itself as a, as a world leader or a potential world leader. Um, and there has been other nuanced criticism of this. So the idea that because this is clearly aimed at counterbalancing what China is doing in the region, the idea that this trilateral agreement is going to place um, the West's attempts to get China to reduce kind of their emissions is going to be a problem. So basically, there's a fear amongst the EU, which is actually a world leader on climate change, that this is going to backfire and it's just going to make China kind of be more aggressive, both in terms of the production of things, in terms of the climate emissions, in terms of their kind of military posture in, in the Indo-Pacific. So, yeah, that's why it's been criticised by lots of different people from lots of different parties. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, if, if you search 
Orcus on Twitter. The first tweet that came out, came out for me anyway was the Jeremy Corbyn tweet that says, we don't need another Cold War. This is basically a bad idea. Um, and Theresa May, the reason why Zach and I were talking about Theresa May earlier, basically said a similar thing, saying kind of, is this going to drag us into another war? Kind of what are the implications for Taiwan? All that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it's controversial because defence and military and nuclear weaponry is always controversial. And it'll be controversial in the US, it'll be controversial in the UK, it'll be controversial in Australia, but it'll also be controversial both in the West and in the East as well. Just following on from that then, do you see this as essentially a, a Cold War 2.0? Are we in this, are we at the beginning of one? And how do you think, does this massively escalate things or is it one of those scaremongering kind of things where people are accusing it of being another Cold War when in reality it's a completely different thing? Um, as the potential to going that way, again, so Zach and I were talking about this before the show, just to fill the listeners in. In terms of a Cold War, I see two potential ways in which that could exist in the 2020s, kind of modern day. I think you could have a situation where it's the West, and again, I'm using these terms, what on earth the West means is contested in itself. But when I'm talking about the West, I'm talking about neoliberalism, capitalism, all this kind of stuff. Um, the West versus China, which operates on a different system, operates on, on different humanitarian beliefs, all this kind of stuff. So you could have literally a repeat of the US USSR Cold War, where it's the West versus China, or you could have something along the lines of the West versus extremism. So like a repeat of what we saw with the war on terror. And of course, I think there's, there's a link between the two because you've seen that China's approach to the situation situation in Afghanistan is very different to everyone else's approach with regards to, to the, the Al-Qaeda leadership in the country now. Um, so I think the two are interlinked. So yeah, you can have any sort of combination of those two factors culminating in some kind of Cold War. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's going to go that far right now. I don't think this ex escalates it quite to that level. Um, but of course, some people would already say that we are already in a Cold War, which in itself is interesting. Um, just to, I'm going to read a, uh, the lead paragraph from a story in The Guardian today. So China's President Xi Jinping has vowed to resist interference from external forces as Taiwan welcomes support from major allies after a US-Australia ministerial forum pledged stronger ties with the island and the European Parliament called for a bilateral trade deal. And of course, it's important to remember that, that China has been aggressive in kind of the, the South Sea like it's been building islands so that it can broaden its its territorial claims in the region and things like this like it, it, it's not messing around in the region um so yeah it, this is very very they, the leaders didn't announce in the announcement rather the uk prime minister the australian prime minister president biden none of them mentioned china by name this is obviously very 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 clearly directed at china and it will be interpreted as as such in beijing do you think this has ramifications in the actual governing Tory party? Because, of course, we've already seen that criticism of Theresa May that it could open up things. And given our chequered history with China over the past 18 months, so we had Huawei, for example, that whole operation stepped down. Would you reckon that that will cause some debate and consternation within the Tory party itself? Probably not. Um, so I think this is... An interesting question in terms of the UK's place in the world, 
so I, I people can argue this point with me if they like on Twitter at James underscore thirty two. But I don't think there are many members of parliament or many many prominent political figures in the UK who often spend a lot of time talking about foreign policy. We have like ex army veterans in in parliament. They're obviously well known who they are, and they talk about defence on a more granular level. I find as compared to the US, which has more of a grand strategy. Um, so in terms of Tory MPs, like, pick an example, Andrew Rosendale, the, the Member of Parliament for Romford, do I think he's going to be majorly impressed or upset by this? Not really. I, I don't think the majority of Conservative MPs are going to be com- particularly concerned. Um, obviously, in opposition parties, it will be more interesting because kind of the Jeremy Corbyn wing, or what was the Jeremy Corbyn wing of the Labour Party, will be against nuclear powers. Um, not when I say nuclear powers, I mean nuclear war, military powers, not nuclear powers in powering my kettle. Um, so yeah, those people are obviously going to be upset by this because it's more kind of working together on on things that relate to to, to nuclear warfare, essentially. Um, and you can compare that with, with the situation in the US where there are a lot of members of Congress who are very, very adamantly interested and adamantly involved in in foreign affairs. So to answer your question, I don't think in Parliament this is going to be a huge thing, to, to be honest. And do you think that this agreement kind of, I think we, we alluded to this off air, I think a few days ago, that could this be, be the beginning of building blocks towards a trade deal. So I know that, for example, and perhaps the viewers may know that the UK and Australia are set to agree a trade deal. I think we're in the very final furlongs of that. Could the closer cooperation also pull Britain and America a bit closer together on a prospective trade deal? Or is that another matter for another day? In a word, no. I don't think this is particularly linked to the UK having trade deals with Australia, the US, whoever else might be involved in this kind of further along the line. I think there are other factors that block a potential UK-US trade deal. Food, for example, the standards between farming in the UK and farming in the US are very, very different in terms of animal welfare, in terms of the chemicals that things are treated with. We've heard a lot about chlorinated chicken, for example. Um, and no, I don't, I don't think it is. In terms of how this might help the UK get trade deals with other countries. I think it shows that in some respects, the UK is still interested in working with other parties. This is obviously a really significant thing. It's about military force, essentially. Um, so maybe the UK could be trusted in a trade deal. Whether or not you believe that is another thing. I don't think that I do either. Um, and of course, it's a commitment to the US. And there's been a lot of talk about is is the special relationship still special? Was the special relationship ever special in the first place? But I think people in the UK government will say, look, we've done the US a favour in joining this strategy. Hopefully they'll repay us with a favour in terms of sorting out a trade deal. Do I think that's going to happen either? Absolutely not. I honestly think the Americans look at this and go, oh, that's nice that the Brits have decided to join us. Um, we're not going to do anything for the Brits in return. I think that's the nature of the special relationship. So, no. To be honest, I don't think there's going to be a huge amount of, of trade happening as a result of this. So we've we've covered a lot of key topics here. And there's obviously so many different things at play. So just to wrap this up, I suppose, what is the key fundamental headline takeaway from all of this? 
both now and going forward? So to answer that question, I'm going to give you a quote from China's Foreign Affairs Department spokesperson, Xiao Lingjiang. So this is what they said. The US, UK and Australia are engaging in cooperation in nuclear powered submarines that gravely undermines regional peace and stability, aggravates the arms race and hurts the international non-proliferation efforts. Um, While the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C. also accused the three countries of having Cold War mentality and ideological prejudice. So in terms of the Western perspective on this, I think the Cold War angle is is obviously there to be seen. I think in terms of the of the Chinese perspective on this, it's felt much more strongly. Um, and understandably so, because in this instance, the West is the aggressor. The West is the one who's gone out and, and, and made this trilateral pact. The West is the one talking about nuclear submarines kind of on China's doorstep. So for me, that's the takeaway. And I think the interesting thing going forward to get back to the question in hand is how will China respond? And the thing that I want to finish on as well is a quote from Taiwan's vice president who welcomed the pact, referring to it as a positive development for democracy, peace and prosperity in the region. Now, that sounds funny, doesn't it? The idea that building nuclear submarines could be a positive development for democracy, peace or prosperity. But that's how many figures in the region will feel because this is intended to counterbalance China. And if China is counterbalanced, then obviously in the region that China is seen as as not being a positive development for democracy, peace or prosperity. So if China is kind of subdued, then democracy, peace and prosperity can flourish. So there really is a huge gulf in opinion on this, as you would expect. The French are calling this a stab in the back in terms of Australia abandoning their decision to join the French submarine programme. It's going to be really interesting to see how this to see how this all develops. I think this is the start of something. Um, the start of the West really intensely focusing on the Indo-Pacific, Indo-Pacific as it's being termed. And I think the other really important significant thing about the timing of this is it's only a couple of weeks after the West's calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, So if the West's kind of foreign policy wonks can focus on something else, that's probably a good thing for them in terms of their reputation. So yeah, I think this is going to be a story that we're going to talk about quite a lot in the future. And, and yeah, I think that's, that's all there is to say on this, on this for now. Yeah. Yeah, just to echo your sentiment there, I think it's one of those stories where we have, of course, the headline of this agreement, but the actual interplay of all of this, I think, will branch out for many years to come. I don't think it's going to be one of those flash-in-the-pan stories where it will inflame every now and then. I think it will just be a running saga, and it will just be interesting going forward to see how it does develop. For sure. Um, Before we move off, there's... There's actually been a, that, that, that kind of puts a bow on, on the discussion about AUKUS. Um, but before we finish the show, I did DM Zach mid-show, um, just to, to let him know in case he hadn't seen. But there has been a significant update over the last hour from the, as he's, as he's known on Twitter, the Right Honourable Grant Shapps MP. Um, a travel update. So I'm just reading the, the thread that he's posted on Twitter. We're making testing easier for travel from Monday, the 4th of October. If you're fully vaccinated, you won't need a pre-departure test before arrival into England from a non-red country. And from later in October, it will be uh, will be able to replace the two day PCR test 
with a cheaper lateral flow. In addition, eight, in capital letters, countries and territories will come off the red list from Wednesday the 22nd of September at 4am, including Turkey, Pakistan and the Maldives. We'll also be introducing a new simplified system of international travel from Monday the 4th of October, replacing the current approach with a single red list and simplified measures for the rest of the world, striking the right balance to manage public health risk as the number one priority. So in summary, Zach, the uh, Transport Secretary listens to the show because this is basically what I was suggesting last week. Absolutely. And uh, if he always wants to come on, I think we can invite him on there. Um, One thing is essentially what could possibly go wrong with this, that we are heading towards that fateful winter period where we're now putting so many countries essentially in the green list and, and only having a single red list. It will be interesting to see the interaction between other countries and ours going into that winter because if, if as experts fear that we are heading for this third wave in terms of infections, it will be fascinating to see if this policy does change in any way or if it remains a simple red list and everyone is allowed in. Yeah. So what I said, in, in case you didn't, didn't hear what I had to say on this kind of last I think it was last week, it might have been this week, I can't even remember. But anyway, on a previous podcast, I said that the rules with regards to being double vaccinated and testing should be different because the costs associated with, with going anywhere basically is, is astronomical because of the amount you have to pay on testing, even though you're double vaccinated, even though you're double vaccinated and even though you're going to a greenest country. And I said that that would have a negative impact on, on the aviation industry. It would have a negative impact on the holiday making industry. It had a negative impact on lots of different things, like, like like little things that obviously have a big difference on people's lives, like taxes and parking at airports. These are people's livelihoods and they should kind of be taken seriously. Um, what is surprising me is the changes to the red list. I'll actually be quite fascinated to see once this system is introduced, Will the government expand the red list to include more countries? So ones that would have been like the bottom half of the amber list are now red, and then everything else is more of a free-for-all. I think that will be interesting. I think when this is inevitably tweaked, that will also be interesting. Um, I'm not sure about the red list changes yet. I I mean, this was only tweeted out like an hour ago, so it's it's a bit early to have opinions on it. but I do like the fact that the testing regime is going to change because I think that will really help people go and see loved ones in, in different parts of the world. And I think that's a really important social good, if anything. Um, and I think that probably brings this episode of the Midfield Politics Podcast to a close. We've now been going for probably an hour. Zach and I have had to restart and cut bits out. Um, but yeah, I'm assuming we're at an hour now. So thank you so much for sticking with us. We'll be back next week at some point to discuss the leading political headlines um you can find me on twitter at luke james underscore 32 you can follow the podcast at midfield politic you can find zach zach where can people find you on twitter you can find me at, at zg1999 with an underscore at the end and that really is everything for today so without further ado i leave you with this stay safe and keep voting